from the Appalachian region of the Blue Ridge Mountains of Virginia, NPR. This is the time when we need to write and make art for the sake of healing our souls and enriching our communities. Welcome to Artemis Speaks. So just slow down in because you can't Hello and welcome to Artemis Speaks. I am Donnie Seacrest. I'm an associate editor for the literary journal Artemis, and our founder, Jerry Rogers, uh, has allowed me to jump in and speak with my former teacher and poet hero, Louis Gallo. So um, to introduce uh, Louis really quickly, uh, Louis Gallo is the founding editor of the now defunct journals, the Barataria Review, and Books, a New Orleans review. His work has been nominated for the Pushcart Prize several times. He's published in numerous journals. He has many chapbooks and story collections available. He is also the recipient of a NEA grant for fiction. He teaches at Radford University in Radford, Virginia, and I have to say is wildly loved by his students. And uh, Lou's poetry appears in Artemis Journal 2020 issue. And you also have three recent poetry collections come out and those are Crash, Witness and Other Poems and Clearing the Attic and Other Poems. And he has graciously agreed to speak with us today. And archaeology, great, thank you. Yeah, and is that is that a collection as well? That's yeah, that's from um, Kelsey Books, um, collection of poems. Excellent. Okay, and yeah, I missed one. See, you're so prolific that I I couldn't catch them all. But um, how are you doing this evening, Lou? Thank you for being here. I'm here. Um, surviving you know i hope um yeah you know how it is it's not it's not a good time and um today i just got it i wrote a poem last week um nine months of solitude taken from marquez yeah i did it in spanish that is the title uh, uh, uh las nueve mens mense Nueve Messe, I can't do this fast, but anyway, nine months of solitude. And I just wrote that last week. And I just, it just came to me because of something that happened on the street here in Grove Avenue. Um, a girl in the middle of the night started running up and down the street shrieking. And it just triggered. Um, catalyzed all kinds of thoughts in me about the pandemic, about did this girl really exist? She stopped shrieking for a while. 
And then at dawn, he started shrieking again. I never saw her. I just heard it. It was like the painting the scream, just a disembodied scream. Right. This is a perfect metaphor for our times. Absolutely. <laughs> so, and one of my friends called it not a poem, but a rant. So I said, I'll prove to you that it's a poem. And I sent it to Off Course Literary Journal, and they took it right away. Excellent. Yes. Yes. Gosh. Um, wow. I mean, that's that's a very intense um, kind of a, a wake up call there. <laughs> Having a, a screaming woman. Um, yeah. Paranoia. paranoia. Yeah. You know, Salvador Dali said paranoia was the inspiration for all of his work. And I, you, you know, you remember the clock tripping over the table? Oh, yeah. Um, so I'm, I thought that's actually a good idea. Paranoia as muse. Right. Love that. Yeah. Paranoia <laughs> as muse. And that that actually brings me to my first question um, really nicely, because um, in your your poetry, you bring together the high and low in your poems just really well. You know, the earthy right next to the sublime, the, you know, screaming girl running down Grove Avenue and next second you're quoting Dolly. Um, you know, and in in uh, your 2013 collection, Narcissus. You know, one minute you're you're quoting Heidegger or Eliot, and then the next page you're talking about Pop Tarts, and and I love it. <laughs> um, and and so uh, you, I, I ask, you know, where is the inspiration coming from? Um, generally, I know you have this recent inspiration with thinking about paranoia as muse, but generally do you, you know, lean in to more of the mundane or, or are you, you finding a greater source of inspiration from, from the high art area? Um, both. Um, I think it was Kierkegaard who talked about the sublime and the pedestrian mm. means you could take a shoestring or a slice of pizza and and explode them into some spiritual apotheosis, which is what I try to do. Um, and it was Walker Percy also used that quote, uh, sublime in the pedestrian. So yeah, I mean, where else is the sublime, right? Unless mm, mm -hmm. you're and it's up there with the absolutes. Right. So um, absolutes and relatives have just that it's been a dialectical warfare all my life. I love that. Yeah. You know, um, and where do I get inspiration? Everywhere. That's all I do is process things. Mm. And uh, I use people. I'll use people as characters and stories. Um, sometimes they get offended. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Uh, very little of what I do is is pure, um, what, uh, fantasy or, or uh, what? 
reality. Salvation. Yeah, okay, sure. Um, most of it's autobiographical. In mm -hmm. fact, I think all of it is. And I think that's true for every writer. Yeah. No matter what they claim, you take James Joyce's Ulysses. That seems like a fairly objective work, right? Based on the Odyssey. Wait a minute. Read about Joyce's life, and you'll see that no. And you mentioned Sylvia Plath. Right. Pure autobiography, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Pure autobiography. Walden is still up. Mm -hmm. So it seems to me that um, where everyone has their own individual mind, and whatever gets passes through it is is tempered by that particular convolution of gray matter. Right. So um, it's it's got to be autobiographical. It's got despite new criticisms. What's that? The fallacy of uh, yeah, yeah, intentional fallacy. Yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> yeah, intentional fallacy and biographical, autobiographical fallacy. That to me is just pure academic BS. <laughs> I I love that. I love thinking about um, how no matter what you write. Um, or any of us write, it's always going to be filtered through our own gray matter. I think that's uh, a really important takeaway and a, a great perspective on things um, that I, I can't wait to tell my teachers when uh, spring semesters. <laughs> but um, you mentioned too, um, of course, you know, um, finding this sublime in in the everyday, and I know that um, you you have a spiritual practice, and I I was wondering if you wouldn't mind talking a little bit about how spirituality factors into your writing. Well, in my life, it's major. Uh, I've searched for God all my life. Sometimes I find it. And during this pandemic, I'm not finding it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, I've tried, I've taken the bits from various religions, mainly Zen Buddhism, um, Judaism, Christianity, Taoism. Uh, I've taken the best that I like from those religions and made my own Bible, like Emerson says we should do. And has it worked? I'm still looking. Mm -hmm. Not too long ago, I tried to officially join the Catholic Church, but I did it for the wrong reasons. I like the ritual. I like the, the ancient history of it. Um, and it turned out that the priest was was a complete martinet, a, a tyrant, and I hated him. Mm. <laughs> um, he, I went, I did the Holy Communion. This was the new priest. The old priest gave it to me. Mm -hmm. It felt good. So the new priest reared back and said, "Are you are you Catholic?" I said, "No, not officially." He said, well, I can't, I can't administer the, the sacrament to you. 
I can only give you my blessing. So I told him, I don't want your blessing. I want the sacrament. And he kicked me out. So I said, okay, I'm not dealing with that religion. So yeah, I'm on my own. I tried uh, shamanism, uh, drumming circles, sweat lodges. I had a, a, a soul retrieval, a few, soul retrieval a few times and went out into the wilderness to fight for a vision. And I had one, massive one, yeah. um, out in the wilderness. So yes, yeah, spirituality is very big for me. Mm. It's very, very major. Uh, I'm not sure how it translates into the poetry or the fiction, but in my life, it's, it's one of the uh, salient factors, the way I think. Because mm -hmm. I'm always looking. I'm always looking. And I haven't quite found what I'm looking for. Sure. Yeah. And, and by the way, the spirituality is very mixed up with science, quantum physics, relativity. And if you read the latest uh, scientists, they're very spiritual. They're looking for the same thing. They're finding it. I'm, I'm beginning to think that God is in the quantum equations. I love that. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the universe, if you think about the universe, it's amazing. It's uh, something stupendous is going on. We don't have the brain power to figure it out. But how could it be that it exists at all? That's Heidegger's question. Why is this something rather than nothing? How do we, how do we, we're on a little ball that's, that's orbiting a star. A fire in the sky. I mean, this is this is incredible. So, I, there's there had to be a creator. Now I know that's a fallacy too. You know, cause <laughs> and effect. Uh, some of the physicists are saying that it all started out with a fluctuation in the void. Think about that. A fluctuation in the void. A twitch of nothingness. And then the universe. Wait, that's the same thing as saying, let there be light, isn't it? Sounds pretty similar. <laughs> yeah. Great. Yeah, I. that's so interesting, um, Lou. And I think that also speaks to this spirituality. You know, it's, it's in your everyday. It's in your history. It's in your gray matter as well. Um, so, so yeah, maybe it's not a very straightforward answer, you know, it's not a, a conscious, you know, okay, I, I pray and then I write the poem type deal. Um, poems, I think poems are two things. One, they're dreams, and two, they're prayers. Mm. And you interpret the poem by, by um, commune, communing with its images, where do the images come from? Your subconscious mind. Mm -hmm. And some of them are archetypes, not mere images, but Jungian archetypes. So um, we're, we're, how do I get off on this? I don't know, but I, I love that, um, that poems are dreams and prayers and that you interpret them by communing with the images. I think that's so powerful and... Um, well, wait, 
think about Freud wrote a book on dream interpretation, and Jung wrote many, mm -hmm. and I've read it. The, and it's always interpreting the images, um, making rational the irrational images. Mm -hmm. And that's what you do when you interpret poems. When you, when you explicate poems, you, you, you rationalize the irrational. Mm -hmm. And in the, that's, that's how poems are dreams. And um, I think they're prayers because why does anybody write in? Uh, and what is religion? Religion is, in some ways, you could, in the negative sense, you could call it desperation. Mm. In the positive sense, you could call it uh, hallelujah. So poems are both hallelujahs and desperate enterprises. And why else would you do it? You could be out having fun, right? <laughs> you could be out playing frisbee. And yet there you are at the keyboard, struggling. And I started out before keyboard. I started out with mechanical typewriters and, and fountain pens. I had to type my whole dissertation on a mechanical typewriter. Wow. A brick. <laughs> yeah. Did you, ever see the, did you ever see the typewriter Nietzsche used? One no. day you should check out uh, Nietzsche's typewriter. And there's probably an image of it on the computer somewhere. How did, how did he do it? <laughs> how did he do it? Yeah, I'll, I'll look into that for sure. Um, but I, I wanted to jump on another word you said and, and thinking about the, the turning to poem in, in times of desperation. And um, so Artemis Journal, of course, um, started out of um, these writing workshops in the 70s for victims of domestic violence. And so this, this theme of resilience that I, I've read in your work, I think is so important. And thinking about the, the desperate times we're in now, um, since you've written about um, Katrina and the devastation um, that storm wrecked on, on your hometown of New Orleans and your, your recent collection Crash, um, you know, came out of this horrific crash, car crash you were in. Um, and so I was wondering if you could say something about, um, if there is one, um, what's the connection for you between poetry and resilience? Uh, Walker Percy once said, imagine a Kafka who never wrote a word. It would, save, it would save Kafka, right? Yeah. But he wrote. And he wrote about things that are very thinly disguised autobiographical instances. Um, so resilience is the writing. That's the resilience. Mm. Imagine if you had gone through a car crash like the one I was in, or this pandemic, and not write about it. What kind of misery would you be in? So the poems, the poetry 
is the medication. The poetry mm. is the, the um, unguent. Um, as I said, imagine a Kafka who never wrote a word. And then there, there's the whole thing in a nutshell right there. Imagine, you know, I, I wrote a, I wrote that poem, uh, Crash, which is fairly long. And originally it was a, in poetic form, but I changed it to prose form, prose poems, because I wanted to publish it in Litro, the British magazine, which they took, they published. And um, I just wrote a series of poems, and um, everybody in the world is doing this right now called the Pandemic Papers. Mm. And um, uh, do you know um, Aaron Moore of Floyd's Union? Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, he, he took a whole bunch of the Pandemic Papers. And I think your dad was featured once in that magazine. Yeah, yeah. Recently. So I will be the featured poet uh, in the next issue, I think. With the pandemic papers, I'm a little worried about that. I'm a little worried because everybody's doing it, and how am I going to be original? You know, <laughs> everybody in the world's doing it. No, it'll it'll be filtered through your gray matter. Your you know, unique to you, gray matter. Um, I, I love that though, that poetry is the medication. Um, I think, yeah, people need to hear that. And um, I, I can't wait to read your, the pandemic papers. And that's in uh, Aaron Moore's Floyd County Moonshine, which is another terrific literary journal. And I just love, <laughs> Um, the, the writing that comes out of the Blue Ridge and I miss he's, it. He's done, he's done an amazing job. Just an amazing job. Mm -hmm. He's a great poet too. I don't right. know if you've read any of his work, but he's good. He's really good. Great. Um, wonderful. So, so thank you for answering these questions. Um, I just wanted to, um, yeah, I wanted to also ask you, um, and, and we had kind of started talking about this um, before I introduced the podcast. But um, so, so Lou, you're a very prolific writer. And so, you know, what's, what's your writing process? What's your schedule look like? Do you have to carve out time or, or do you just sit down? What is it? I just sit down and do it. And something is always brewing. And I have, every day of my life since four years old, had to write something. And my very first poem, which I still remember, goes like this. Daddy is good. Daddy is very good. I love daddy. That was it. Four years old. And ever since I've written. So many things have distracted me. I've been, uh, when I could have been, I keep thinking, if only I hadn't been distracted by life, what could I have written? Um, the longest thing I've written is a novel, 
called The Secret Survivor, which in print is 500 something pages. Uh, in manuscript, it's 900 pages, typed manually, way back. It's the, the Secret Survivor of New Orleans Forks, F-A-R-C-E, and it's autobiographical, you know, as usual. It's about New Orleans in 1976. And I keep saying, I could have done more like that. I've actually written about three or four novels, um, but that's that's my pride and joy for that. And it's completely politically incorrect. Nothing is sacred, nothing. <laughs> so I would probably get in trouble if today, if, if I tried to publish it somewhere, it's published, but I did it through, um, it's an outfit, uh, can't think of the name of it, the, the Amazon public, uh, printing press, what was it? you remember? Not Adelaide, is it? No, Adelaide's a separate company. Um, it's, you have the book Narcissus right there? Yeah, yeah. Should be on there. Oh, oh, Orphic Press. No, the Orphic Press is me. Oh. But it was it was actually printed by some some outfit that was the uh, printing press of um, Amazon. Oh, yeah, I'm not sure. I can't think. It was a long time ago. I can't think of the name of it. Yeah, it gives me the date it was printed, but it doesn't tell me the, uh, the salient back matter that we need. Um, but, but no, that's, that's great. That's, again, I think in, in this time of the pandemic, um, just hearing that, yeah, you just got to sit down and write is so important. And um, advice I need to take as well, but um, every day, every day. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Every day. Um, so to to not keep you too long, um, I also was wondering if um, you would read a poem for us. Okay, this book, Archaeology, is actually a symbol. I consider myself an archaeologist. I'm digging. And so this is the title poem. I went into my backyard with a sturdy spade and began, began digging up my past. Each decade I flung into a mountain pile of mud and ash until I came upon the first ten. I now stood in a six-foot hole that sank to my knees and cried every single year the lesser trial. They yielded easily, save the third. I could loosen only a few pebbles there, and then solid stone. I lay down in that hole and tried to crack it with the dynamite of my mind, to no avail. The first years proved impenetrable. In oblivion, I could not plunder. So like the oblivion come, I trust, alive but unaware, that dubious blessing. So, 
We are all archaeologists and nostalgicians of our own minds. We try to, what's the first memory? Try to go back. And at some point you come into a blank wall. Right. Rasa. Yeah. Yeah. Wonderful. Thank you for reading that poem. Thank you for sharing that with us from, from archaeology. And another killer last line, Lou, and, and that's definitely what I took away from, from your poetry classes, that you have to think long and hard about those last lines. Yes, um, first lines. And, <laughs> and all of them and all the, the word choices, too. Well, thank you so much, Lou, and I'll, I'll let you get back to your evening. And again, thank you so, so much. I love talking with you and catching up a bit. It was great talking to you. Thank you, Lou. Don't make yourself scarce. Definitely. You have to start writing poetry again. Yeah, yeah, I will. Well, but, thank you so much. So good to see you. Give you a hug. Yeah, virtual hug here. <laughs> All right, talk to you soon. You've been listening to Artemis Speaks. Artemis is a charitable organization now 43 years old and has evolved to be all-inclusive, a journal with essays, poetry, and art. 10% of the journal's sales are donated to a women's shelter in southwest Virginia. If you're interested in learning more, artemisjournal.org. You can mail us directly at P.O. Box 505, Floyd, Virginia, 24091. The closing music and the opening music you're listening to is Jordan Harmon. The song is Just Slow Down, a very appropriate comment for the times that we're in. If you want to read, you have to slow down. Artemis Speaks, the podcast, is recorded twice monthly at Final Track Studios in Virginia. All rights reserved. It is co-produced by Jerry Rogers and and you know you can't lose touch of those things that you love so much. You love so much. Can anybody tell me? Came so cool. We got everybody walking around, trying to do the same thing that everybody else they do. And you know, oh yes, you know, you gotta be yourself. Yourself is all you got and all you got is what you need Look in the mirror, see it clearer The answer's staring at you And so just slow down in life 
Just slow down. 